This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications at Goldman. Today we'll be talking about the UK economy. The United Kingdom is coming off a year of relatively strong economic growth, especially in comparison with its peers in the EU. Persistent low inflation remains a risk, however, in what's an election year in the UK. To discuss what 2015 has in store for the United Kingdom, I'm joined by Kevin Daly, who is the senior European economist at Goldman Sachs focused on the UK. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. As I said, the UK has traditionally demonstrated growth somewhere between the EU and the US, but recently it's skewed much closer to the latter, well, higher. So what are the reasons that the UK has been able to drive stronger economic growth than its European counterparts? I mean, so UK is a very interesting uh, situation because in the seven years since the global financial crisis, five of those performance in the UK was pretty terrible. And then the last two plus years, it's been exceptionally good. And so there's various theories as to why that turnaround took place. But for us, by far the most convincing in the sense that it can account both for the underperformance and the subsequent outperformance, but also the timing of the transition from one to the other, was that the Bank of England in the middle of 2012, they, they swapped their focus from quantitative easing to, to credit easing. So really focusing on improving the provision of credit to, to households and businesses. By lucky coincidence, that also coincided with uh, Mario Draghi, the, the president of the ECB's commitment to do, quote unquote, whatever it takes to save the, the euro area economy. So you saw a big reduction in, in risk at that time. So these two factors combined to really improve the provision of credit to the UK economy and, and really drove growth both for households and businesses thereafter. And explain the difference as you see it between a focus on credit and a focus on pure QE. The Fed did both. I mean, the Fed's QE program had a significant credit element in it in, in the sense that the Fed was also buying mortgage-backed securities, so it was mm -hmm. helping to drive down the costs of mortgage funding for U.S. households. In the UK, under the QE program that existed between 2009 and mid-2012, before they swapped to credit easing, they only bought UK government securities, only bought UK gilts, or the equivalent of US treasuries. So that was fine in creating liquidity, but UK banks were not liquidity constrained. They had a problem with their funding costs, and, and that's what credit easing seeks to achieve, to help drive down the funding costs of UK banks that they, in turn, can provide more abundant and cheaper credit to the wider economy. Given the, the outlook right now, do you see the UK maintaining its growth rate through the end of this year? And what are the risks to the growth picture there? So I mean, we continue to be relatively optimistic. We have 3% growth for this year and next year, relative to a consensus of around 2.5% for both. Part of the reason why we're optimistic is we, you know, the banking sector in the UK continues to improve, credit provision continues to improve. But the new additional factor to that has been the decline in oil prices uh, from the middle of 2014 onwards. I mean, this is, you know, for the UK, is, it provides a really big stimulus. On our estimates, we calculate it'll boost the level of GDP by in around 1.5%, so close to three quarters of a percent on GDP growth per year over two years. 
So is the full impact of the lower oil prices been felt on the UK economy now, or is there more to come? No, it takes a while to come through. And actually, if I can broaden the point, is that I think one of the reasons for optimism on global growth is the view that oil prices, when you have a big decline, such as we have had in the last six to nine months, almost immediately you see those effects on inflation rates through petrol prices, gasoline prices that people have to pay. So the effects on inflation come through almost straight away, but the effects on growth aren't seen typically for three to four quarters before they come through as households begin to adjust their spending patterns to the fact that petrol prices are lower and so forth. So it's our view that it will contribute to stronger growth both in the UK, also in, the, in Europe more broadly and, and globally. The U.S., the impact is typically less in the U.S. because the U.S. is, is now an increasingly large oil producer. So it's, it's great for U.S. consumers. And pluses and minuses in the U.S. Exactly. economy these days. Whereas yeah. for, for U.K. and Europe, there's, there's pretty much only pluses. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the workforce. One of the criticisms of the growth we've seen recently is that it hasn't filtered through mm. to the workforce. The UK unemployment rates come down below 6%, but will we start to see some wage growth uh, this year and beyond? We think one of the very interesting developments in the UK in the last few years is quite how strong employment growth has been. So as you say, unemployment has come down, employment has has gone up. In contrast to the US, for instance, we're now in the UK at a record high employment rate. But that's been combined with very weak wage growth, which is an unusual combination. Mm -hmm. If you see employment strength, you'd expect to see wages relatively strong. And I think the explanation for that, or or we have argued that the explanation for that, is that the strength of employment has been driven by a big increase in labour supply. So amongst older workers in particular, you've seen uh, quite substantive changes in retirement legislation in in the UK. In, In the UK, Historically, you're um, expected to retire after the age of 65. You had significant state pension benefits kicked in at at those stages. They've changed the the rules on that, and they've also pushed back the pension availability. So in the UK, you've had a a much bigger increase in participation amongst older workers in particular. So with this big increase in labour supply, you've had the combination of strong employment, but due to the abundance of labour, relatively weak wage growth has accompanied that. We think this year, this is the point where wages now will also begin to accelerate, now that we are at a a record high employment rate and and very low unemployment rates. So usually when you see um, low unemployment rates and and strong growth, you would expect to see interest rates uh, moving up. Um, What's kept rates down so far and, and what could change that going forward? So part of it is, has been that you know inflation has been so low. So the Bank of England is is an inflation targeter, an explicit inflation targeter. Um, now they don't respond to inflation today. That would be impossible. They have to look through some of these short-term effects. Mm-hmm. So um, they look at the medium-term inflation dynamics and. Uh, but inflation, underlying inflationary pressures in the UK have been very modest and we expect inflation to be close to zero th- through this year due to the impact of lower petrol price in particular. But as unemployment continues to fall and as wages, at least in our forecast, begin to rise and with growth relatively strong as we expect, we believe that the next move in interest rates in the UK is going to be higher rather than lower. And on our central forecast, at least, we expect that first rate rise to come in 
towards the end of this year. Now, we would argue that the risk relative to that forecast is that the first rate hike is, is shifted out further, so it takes place later than we currently expect, given inflation dynamics have been even weaker than we anticipated. And the dynamic on the continent as well. Yeah, dynamic. I mean, there are, there are signs that the euro area is doing better uh, now for some of the reasons that I've already talked about that apply to the UK, so oil prices, but the euro area has the additional booster of a much weaker exchange rate, which is good for growth. But it, it's, it certainly has been the biggest risk for the UK and, and, and remains still, although, as I say, the near-term dynamic in the euro area is more positive. Political developments there are, are still um, you know, a risk both for euro area and, and UK growth. The Chancellor released a new budget for the UK in the middle of March. How will that budget impact growth projections for the UK? Does it change the picture at all? The effects we think will be pretty limited. The opportunity to do that much in the budget so close to an election was pretty limited. Um, so this was very much a, a budget focused on politics rather than one that introduced any substantive economic changes. So the economic implications of the budget are you know, close to zero, we would argue. Uh, let's talk about home prices. Uh, they were up in the UK 8% last year and home building continues to lag demand and has over the, really over the last decade or yeah. so, which has put upward pressure on prices. So what's the state of the market now? I know this has been of some concern to both the political classes and the economic policymakers. And what do increasing home prices mean for the economy as a whole? You know, the UK is, is in many senses seen, and, and I think correctly so, as being the European economy that is most like the US in terms of its you know, economic policies and so forth. And prior to the global financial crisis, a lot of similarities were drawn between the UK's housing market and, and the US's housing market. In our view, incorrectly so, because this is one area where I think the UK and US are, are very different. And, and you, you touched on, on the reason for that itself. The UK is almost more like the Manhattan uh, housing market rather than the US housing market. Is a, yeah, is which it, is a, a different beast altogether. Absolutely, absolutely. The UK is a relatively small island, okay, not, not quite as small or as densely populated as Manhattan, but nevertheless a, a, a small island, highly densely populated. Also because of the planning regulations, there is a, a chronic undersupply of, of housing in the UK. So prior to the crisis, house prices were very high in the UK, and, and, and but unlike the US, have remained very high in the UK, mainly because in, in the US it was clear that that was due to a bubble. It was due to people speculating on future house price gains. In the UK, the high level of prices more reflected just the fundamental lack of supply of housing. So, so imbalance. In, yeah. yeah. So if you if you you know whether you rented or or bought a home, it's just very expensive to purchase a place to live in the UK. And and you know over time, um, we expect house building to increase. But you know while uh, supply remains limited as it does now, it's our expectation that prices nationally will remain relatively robust. Well, thank you, Kevin. Good conversation. Maybe we'll have you back on after the elections, talk about the future. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We hope you join us again next time. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on March 30th, 2015.
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.